Well, earlier this year, at our annual celebration, I announced the vision that I believe that God is calling us to in this season as a church together, a vision to lean into our strengths while praying into our challenges. Leaning into our strengths while praying into our challenges. As we embark on this Lenten journey of of hungering and longing for and pursuing transformation, that broader vision actually informed my choice of Paul's letter to the Philippians for our Lenten preaching series. As we'll see throughout over these next five weeks, the encouragement of St. Paul to that church fits this, the, the pattern of that vision. Lean into your strengths, pray into your challenges. He encourages them to lean into their strength in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. But he also models praying for him and he's praying for them and he tells them what he prays for them, urging them to seek God together in areas where they are facing challenge. But this book of Philippians also has a relevance that's even sort of closer to home and closer to my heart when we consider this call, leaning into our strengths, praying into our challenges. Beginning in the spring of 2005, a group, uh, a small group of eight adults and ten children started meeting in our home, uh, Sarah and I, starting to talk about and pray about a vision to plant a church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Several of these brothers and sisters we'd met through the churches we were serving in Longmont and Windsor. One couple we met through our son's preschool. But all of them were excited and felt called to pursue with us this vision that God had laid on our hearts to plant a brand new Anglican church in Fort Collins. We met together on Saturday nights for eight months, praying, studying together, talking about what it would look like to be a church, a community that at its center was all about worship, that welcomed people of all ages and backgrounds, that was rooted in the scriptures and in the ancient liturgy and sacraments of the church, and which was not only open to but actively seeking the empowering and enlivening presence of God's Holy Spirit. And in the midst of that season, this was the place that we started. We started with a Bible study on the book of Philippians. Through a book by D.A. Carson called Basics for Believers, to which I owe a huge debt of gratitude for forming my own understanding of Paul's letter. So when I say that this is very much a personal connection with the call to lean into our strengths, understand this. When you look around Christ, our Hope Anglican Church today, and you celebrate the good things that God has done and is doing in our midst, when you see our strengths, you know, this dynamic worship through scripture and sacrament and spirit, our welcoming of diverse ages and backgrounds and commitments, our mutual love and care for one another, these strengths are here for us to lean on as individuals and as a community. These were built into our DNA by the Spirit of God in large part because of that formational work 
of walking through Philippians and seeking to pattern our corporate life on what we found there. The fact that we remain a community with the worship of Christ and the life of the Spirit at our center. The fact that we are a people who sacrificially serve Christ and one another. I mean, frankly, the fact that we are still here 14 years later. All of that can be traced back to the themes and principles gleaned from prayerfully walking through Philippians together. And at the same time, as we consider the challenges that still lie before us, the challenge to remain faithful in the midst of our contemporary lives that seek to woo us away from remaining steadfast in our commitments, the challenge to remain committed in love toward one another and committed to loving the neighbors that God places in our lives, and the other gospel challenges that St. Paul will lay out for us over the course of these next five weeks, you'll see why a study of Philippians once again struck me as a timely word to us on how to celebrate and lean into our strengths, as well as forming priorities for how we pray into our challenges. So if you have your Bible, you'll want to turn with me to Paul's letter to the Philippians, the first chapter, which was read for us. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, there's actually some Bibles on the back table. Put the gospel first. Put the gospel first. This is how St. Paul begins his letter. Chapter 1 is all about the, the gospel of Jesus Christ as the first principle of everything that he has to say. Everything in that chapter and everything that will follow after. So right off the bat, Let's define what we mean by that word, gospel. It's rather more all-encompassing than how we often use it. We usually use that word, gospel, as a, a shorthand for the message that Jesus Christ died to save us from our sins. And we're not wrong to do so. But as I say, in the New Testament, it is a slightly broader, not slightly, actually a much broader and more robust sense behind it, meaning behind it. At its root level, this Greek word, euangelion, gospel, was actually a technical term for glad tidings, good news. It literally means a good message. It was a technical term for glad tidings born by a herald or messenger. So in the ancient Roman world, if, for instance, a new Caesar was coronated, if he was crowned as Caesar, angelos, yes, from which we get the word angels, angelos, messengers, were sent to all of the major hubs of the empire to proclaim the euangelion, the good news, the good tidings of great joy for all the people that a new Caesar was crowned. So, when St. Mark, for instance, begins the account of the life of our Lord, he uses these words. The beginning of the gospel, euangelion, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When he does that, he's making a very countercultural and, frankly, controversial statement. That was the language of heraldry reserved to the Caesars. 
Here is an obscure Jewish man, the first author to take up stylus and parchment and record the sayings and doings of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Son of God, and he's co-opting this royal heraldry language to announce Christ as the true king of all people, the true and rightful son of the one true God. And so when the New Testament uses the word euangelion, gospel, it is referring to the basic assertion that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God who is the king of the universe. And yes, who did enter into humanity in order to redeem humanity from the bondage of sin and death. It's a subtle, subtle but very key difference in our understanding because it shapes the way then we're meant to view all of life. The gospel isn't just about the salvation of my immortal soul. It's about living in right relationship with God, my fellow human beings, and all of creation under the kingship of Jesus. And certainly the first principle that makes that possible is receiving the grace of God and the liberation from bondage that we do gain through the work of Jesus Christ. But when I say that this first chapter in Philippians is centered on Paul's commitment to put the gospel first, I mean this full-orbed, all-encompassing, life-shaping vision of the euangelion, the good news of Jesus Christ. So now that we understand gospel, I want to point us to four specific areas that St. Paul calls us to put the gospel first. Put the gospel first in your fellowship, in your relationships, in verses 3 through 8. Put the gospel first in your prayers, in verses 9 through 11. Put the gospel first in your ambitions, verses 12 to 18. And put the gospel first in your expectations, in verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Put the gospel first in your relationships. And if you are in the back corner following along, you should have received the answer to several of the first blanks that you got back there. Put the gospel first. In your relationships. St. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Christian fellowship is a funny concept when you think about it. First, it draws together people who would not ordinarily and in any other way necessarily be drawn together. I'm convinced that I probably wouldn't even have the opportunity to meet about half of you if it weren't for this church, right? I mean, we live in different communities. We, we are in different, uh, you know, different strata of, of demographic, different stages of life. You know, aside from running into each other at Sprouts, there's really no reason why we ought to meet each other 
and how many people that you run into at Sprouts do you really get to know, right? Christian fellowship brings together people from such diverse backgrounds whose one and only association is Christian fellowship, right? But this word fellowship, too, koinonia in the Greek, it merits deeper exploration as well. Because once again, we uh, normally use it in ways different than what St. Paul means and uses it here. As one preacher put it, if you get together for a cup of coffee with a non-believing neighbor, we call that friendship. But somehow, if you get together for that same cup of coffee with a brother or sister, now it's fellowship, right? Or, you know, we call sometimes this uh, room out to my left here our fellowship hall, which is really just shorthand for the place where it's appropriate to drink your coffee and maybe catch up and chat with people after church, right? That's how we tend to use fellowship. But in the New Testament, when we read that word, koinonia, it has the connotations that actually uh, the ESV translation that we read from here draw out by translating it actually as partnership. In Greek, it's a term used to describe a joint business venture. You know, if you and I decide to go into business together, say we want to open a food truck business. I don't know why I chose food truck. Just go with me, all right? We decide to open a food truck, right? And we pool our capital, by which I mean we pool your capital. But anyway, we pool our capital, right? But we put our assets together on the line to, to take out the loan, right? And we, both of our names appear on the, you know, on, on the uh, documents when we acquire the truck and when we acquire the, the equipment. If we do that, then we have entered into koinonia, a fellowship or partnership based on a shared investment An investment that you might even call sacrificial because we both have skin in the game, right? Sacrificial mutual investment in a shared economic vision. That's the root meaning of koinonia. I'll say it again. Mutual investment, sacrificial investment in a shared vision. What Paul is saying here is that koinonia that is based in the gospel is no different We are mutually, sacrificially invested in a shared vision. The lordship of Jesus Christ and his message of grace and freedom. That should be the defining first principle of any true Christian fellowship. Any body, any koinonia. Shared sacrificial investment in the shared gospel vision. Now, I have officially been in ordained ministry for 15 years as of last month. And in that time, I have seen a lot of Christian fellowship united and sadly, a lot of Christian fellowship broken. And in those 15 years, I've thought back over the the breaks in particular. And I can confidently say that to the person, none of them, none of them were motivated by a departure from the shared vision of the gospel. If a church is truly centered on the gospel, it's hard for people to get mad and leave over gospel issues. But what I have seen is that in these situations, more often than not, what does break down is the mutual self-sacrificing investment. When gospel fellowship breaks down, it is often because someone decides to give up. 
they lose interest, or it's too hard to remain invested for whatever reason. I've done it. I'm sure you've done it. Both pieces, though, are necessary for true gospel first koinonia. The common gospel vision and the personal self-sacrificial investment. That's what it means to put the gospel first in fellowship. Second, put the gospel first in your prayers. St. Paul goes on in verse 9, And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, what do you generally pray for when you pray? If you're anything like an average Christian, it's probably things like God's provision, blessing, for peace in the midst of difficulty, for grace with other people who are, frankly, hard to have grace for, right? If you're praying for other friends, it's often their needs for, for healing or, or their provision or help out of difficult situations. Average things like that, right? All right? Well, here's what Paul prays for these brothers and sisters, that their love may abound that their love may abound. Remember that the next time someone asks you to pray for them. Pray for abounding love. But notice Paul prays that their love may abound with all knowledge and discernment. These are things that cannot be separated. You cannot love, not in the godly way at least, without personal knowledge of the love of God. And likewise, knowledge without love and godly discernment is not godly knowledge. Sadly, there are many people, many believers, that have a lot of knowledge about God, but they evidence very little love in their lives. I have been there, I have done that, I have gotten that t-shirt. I'd venture to say it's because they know a lot about God, but they do not know God personally and have not personally experienced his love at a deep and changing level. Likewise, there are many today that truly want to be loving, but they have no knowledge of God either. And so their love comes forth as some sort of, you know, either kind of nebulous sentiment, a propounding of good thoughts and feelings without the teeth of Jesus' definition of love, which is actually laying down your life, a willingness to lay down your life for the good of the other. That's love according to the New Testament. And this is why Paul says the love he's praying for believers is aimed at seeking God's best for the other. And that it will bear fruit. It will manifest itself, not just in nebulous thoughts, but in real world action. Real fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ. And all to the glory of God. That is how St. Paul prays. I'd encourage all of us to incorporate this into our prayers this Lenten season. Try praying at least once a week that you and your brothers and sisters here at Christ Our Hope would increase in love 
impersonal, experiential knowledge of God and his love and in bearing the fruit of righteousness. Let's commit to that and let's see what would happen after five weeks of praying that. Third, Paul urges, put the gospel first in your ambitions. It's another blank back there if you're following along. Put the gospel first in your ambitions. What are your ambitions in life? A stable home and good economic security? That's often mine. To command respect? To prove your parents wrong? To escape the ever-present shame you feel? What are your ambitions in life? What if you were facing wrongful imprisonment? How do you think that might shape your ambitions? Hope for a regime change? An acquittal? Pardon? Did you hear St. Paul's ambitions? Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." Paul was writing those words from a prison in Rome after being wrongfully accused. And what's more, apparently there were some jealous rivals within the church that decided to capitalize on Paul's circumstances in order to make much of their own ministry and and try to diminish Paul's ministry in the eyes of the church. Now, if I was in those circumstances, I will be honest I would be so angry at the injustice and probably so discouraged that I would be hard-pressed to really be thinking about anything beyond my anger and my discouragement. But here is Paul's response. Whatever, I'm just overjoyed that the Lord has used this to expand the preaching of the gospel. Paul had desired to go to Rome and to preach. As it turns out, he got to go there on the taxpayer's dime. Chained to guards that have to sit there and listen to him talk about Jesus all day, every day. People are preaching more in order to give him grief. So what? They're preaching more. That's good. The vision for Christ's kingdom was so central, so all-encompassing, so grand and expansive in Paul's life, everything else was secondary. What would happen in our lives, in our church, in our community, if our vision was so expansive that our life ambitions were shaped in such a way? What could happen? What if we put as much time and thought and effort and prayer into advancing the kingdom of God as we do in advancing the agenda of our own little fiefdoms? Put the gospel first in your ambitions actually leads, ironically, 
to greater contentment. If Paul's great ambition was to preach the gospel, he's saying, that's fine. Lock me up in house arrest. I can do that just as well from here. In uh, the formation hour this morning, we read some of the circumstances from Acts chapter 28, and it sounds like Paul just had this like constant flow of house guests coming through. And guess what? He's got Roman guards that have to sit there and listen to him the entire time because they are literally chained to him on either side in the midst of his house arrest. So he's not even preaching the gospel directly to them, but they are hearing it whether they like it or not. And obviously some of them liked it because they start sharing it around the rest of the household guard. But my point is, it didn't matter to Paul that nothing was going according to plan. Right? He's now sitting in house arrest. He's still doing his one job, which is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter to him then what the circumstances around that look like. Put the gospel first in your ambitions. And finally, put the gospel first in your expectations from life. Put the gospel first in your expectations from life. Right on the heels of this statement about his ambition, Paul continues in verse 18, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh... That means fruitful labor for me. Again, I ask, what do you expect out of life? What do you expect out of life? Paul answered that question quite simply. To glorify Christ. Full stop. To glorify Christ. Paul's confidence is in Christ and in the gospel. So whether Christ delivers him from his chains by moving the authorities to release him, or if he is released by being set free from his mortal life. Either way, he has confidence that he will be delivered. This is what made the early Christians such a threat to the Roman Empire. They quickly found that it is nearly impossible to intimidate people who are not afraid to suffer and die. It is very easy to intimidate people who are afraid. It is nearly impossible to intimidate people that have no fear. In fact, the early Christians weren't only unintimidated, they fully expected to suffer and die. And what's more, they welcomed it. Paul will write, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. The gospel set their expectations for living and dying as followers of Jesus Christ. We'll get into this a lot more next week when we discuss placing the cross at the center of our lives. But suffice to say, as contemporary people immersed in a society that is premised on avoiding suffering and putting the self first, the principle of self-sacrifice that stands at the heart of the gospel is a huge challenge to us. But put the gospel first in your expectations from life. So as we celebrate and press into our strengths, and as we seek in Lent to pray into our challenges, 
consider first and foremost this challenge of St. Paul. Put the gospel first in our fellowship, in our prayers, in our ambitions, in our expectations. Put the gospel first. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, I am well aware that that is very simple to say and very difficult to walk out. And so, Lord, we acknowledge that, and I praise you that you don't expect us to walk it out on our own. That you have given us the power and presence of your Spirit. That you who have begun this good work in us will be the one who sees it through to completion. And you have given us a gospel fellowship to walk it out together. And so, Lord, I commend us, this pilgrim band, to you to do this work with us and within us. And so it's in your mighty name that we pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.